welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Trevor Brown, Vice President of Business Development at Relation, speaking with us today. In an increasingly complicated healthcare space where patients are new payers and their expectations are driven by consumer industries like Amazon and Netflix, medical groups and providers need better strategies for engaging patients and reducing the manual processes that bog down their resources. Complicated even further by the events of 2020's coronavirus pandemic, many patients avoided visits to their healthcare providers during quarantines and state shutdowns and are now experiencing gaps in their chronic, preventative, and follow-up care. They're now at even higher risks for complications and adverse outcomes. A longtime expert in digital healthcare strategies, Trevor shares strategies to help medical practices, hospitals, and health systems close these post-COVID-19 gaps in care, engage their patients, and thrive in the new normal. Having previously worked with EHR software company Athena Health, Brown brings his healthcare technology know-how to medical practices, hospitals, and health systems who want to expand patient access, streamline patient intake, reduce gaps in care, and protect patients, staff, with the sustainable lessons learned during the COVID-19 pandemic. A copy of the slides is available for download in the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the side panel or the upper side of your screen. So Trevor, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Catherine, and thank you very much for that introduction. I have to laugh a little when I hear you say uh, something along the lines of long-term experience. I feel like with COVID and what's going on, the experience time clock was reset as of March of this year, uh, and the lessons that, that we've learned are lessons that we're continuing to learn. So very excited to talk about how this is affecting uh, healthcare currently um, and this hybrid care model that has seemingly come out of this and how medical practices can indeed thrive based on what's going on. Uh, we'll break it down and talk a little bit about what's going on and how healthcare has changed. It'll sound like a little bit of doom and gloom, but there is some light at the end of the tunnel. And we'll give you all uh, some tips and feedback on ways that you can continue to engage with your patients uh, and continue giving care. 
So I just want to touch real quickly on the learning objectives that we're going to make sure and highlight today. First thing we want to do is identify the effects of COVID-19 pandemic and the response from medical providers on patient expectations. We then want to evaluate that hybrid patient care model, including what they are, why they are needed, and the best practices for sustaining them long-term. And of course, we want to offer strategies for implementing the hybrid care model in the outpatient setting, including digital workflows that will power that hybrid care model, as well as leveraging some existing patient engagement strategies to further support the model. Uh, just a little bit about me and then what we do over here at Relations. We're a patient communication engagement company. Well, we've been doing this for the last six years. I've been on board for the last five. As mentioned, I left Athena Healthcare around 2015 to come over here. I was very excited about what was happening. Uh, in that six years, we've grown a little bit, sent a few messages. Uh, last year alone, we sent 132 messages to patients on behalf of about 28,000 healthcare providers. All of that to say, we've been around a few years, we've sent a few messages, we've done a lot of things right, we've also done a lot of things wrong. And the biggest thing I want to share is our experience from learning from those mistakes and ways that we've kind of continued to refine what's at the core of our product and the communications engine. And we'll kind of hopefully let you uh, glean some experience from that and whether it's solutions uh, that are ours or others out there in the industry, there's a lot that are similar. You can take something away from this that you can start to implement in your practices uh, tomorrow. So just going over the agenda here, we're going to jump into healthcare's post-normal in this COVID crisis, what the expectations are from the patients and healthcare realities. And I want to give you a little bit of good news. I have some experience here that I'm going to share with you, but all of you already have a tremendous amount of experience in this, whether you know it or not, and you'll see this start to play out. But being patients yourselves, uh, and maybe from a bigger picture and standpoint, consumers, you have those same expectations. You just may not know it yet. And we're going to dive into what those are. We'll look at what the hybrid care model is, why the health systems need it, and of course, how to power it. We're going to make sure that you know how to make it patient-centered so that the patients do indeed have access to it, maybe most importantly, will use it. And then a few tips on just how to get started. So looking at the impact, uh, it's been a wild year, obviously for everybody, I mean, even just from a personal standpoint. I'm sitting in my kitchen giving this presentation. Luckily, the kids aren't home right now, but they have been quite a bit. Life has changed significantly for everybody. We're wearing masks, hopefully social distancing. And we've seen healthcare take a tremendous hit that's been unprecedented, nothing like I can ever remember in the history. And they've seen a drop in 40% of claims over 2019. And that was, of course, through March and April. Uh, we saw this sudden surge of telehealth. We're going to talk a lot about that and how it's impacted healthcare. And it surged by 50%. And looking at that drop from 40% of claims and the surge of, of telehealth, um, you know, both sides can kind of make the argument of is telehealth doing enough or is telehealth been the only thing that saved ambulatory health care to an extent. Unfortunately, we're also starting to see a large growth in the gaps in critical care. Patients are afraid, so they're putting off health care. Uh, and the growing train of thought is that this is going to lead to higher cost outcomes potentially in the future. We've seen these procedures and diagnostics suddenly start to shoot up 3,000% uh, in some areas, which is just incredible. And the, the cases of COVID continue to rise and fall. 
and we'll kind of talk about what that actually means because it's going to take strategies that can work on both sides as it's kind of waxing and waning and we're starting to see society open back up and possibly take a few steps back depending on what's going on in the geographical area that you're in. And I think this is going to remain a part of our new normal until the vaccine is ready. And I believe some of the things that have come out of this will just be a part of our normal going forward. And what that normal might look like, of course, as healthcare starts to reopen, as some of the risks are lifted, I don't know necessarily the risks are lifted, but some of the mandates are starting to be lifted where uh, certain non-essential businesses can open back up. Obviously, non-essential health care is restarting, but everybody has different guidelines. And even with that, providers are still seeing uh, an incredible decrease in elective procedures and even just visits to the practice. Telehealth has become a focal point that's been thrust into the center of the spotlight. For many, this was not something they had planned on. It may have been a, a three to six year goal, and suddenly it was a three to six week goal, if not quicker. And the reason is obvious. Patients are seeking to get care from their providers in a mobile setting, in a contactless setting, without actually having to be present. And that's for both their safety, the safety of the staff at the medical practice, and hopefully continuing to put these certain uh, measures in place from social distancing to wearing masks will help us as we get to restart on what will be the new normal going forward. So just taking a quick look at what patients expect, and this is what I alluded to earlier, that you all have this experience in already, whether you know it or not. And we have it because we've been conditioned to have certain expectations from every other industry that we interact with for the last probably 10 years. And it's in this digital age. Anytime we want to do anything with another industry, you want to schedule a flight, you want to get a car, we want to get groceries here at our house. You just want to order something. You want to make an appointment, uh, even down to your hairstylist. You hop on your phone and do it. You don't even have to make a call. Patients want the same from healthcare. They want to be able to do this any time of day or night, uh, no matter what day of the week it is. And they have from these other industries a certain expectation or this confidence that their data is private. Now, healthcare is a little bit different um, for a lot of reasons, but it doesn't mean the healthcare can't change and catch up. Historically, and for the most part today, even though some are starting to make the shift, we see a lot of things dependent upon manual processes. So this could be manual data entry. It could be a call center where you have to call in and try to speak to a human being to accomplish something. This leads to a lot of frustration, high wait times, sometimes just the phone tag that inevitably starts. You call and the nurse at your provider's practice isn't available. When they call you back after you left a message, obviously you may not be available then. Now, there's obvious operating times from nine to five. This is just when the practices are open. So obviously they're not going to be answering the call at any time of the day. And I do feel like there is still uh, the idea and confidence of privacy is being maintained within healthcare. Uh, it just happens to be hidden behind portals, usernames, passwords. We'll talk a little bit about why those are so prohibitive to patients actually accessing and utilizing some of the tools that exist. This is a great slide. This uh, we borrowed from an Avia webinar when they were talking about you know, what was the catalyzing event that led to the digital transformation within your healthcare organization. There's a little bit of a joke here, but you know, was it a new CEO, digital officer, a CIO? And for most, it's probably COVID-19 led the digital transformation for the organization because suddenly, whether you had planned on it or not, you had to have the ability for telehealth, you had to have the ability for contactless registration, scheduling, bill pay, you had to have the ability to operate in this mobile environment. 
practical into this new model that we're seeing break out, this hybrid healthcare model. So in the next few slides, we want to kind of talk about what it is and why it's important, how to power it effectively, both inside the office with within telehealth. We're going to leverage digital communication strategies for that. One thing I think you'll notice that can power both sides of the telehealth and the in-office visit. That's the power of technology. And we'll look at how this can hopefully jumpstart this patient care and catching up on some lost time if patients have been putting off, again, some of those routine visits. <clears throat> so what's the hybrid care? Just kind of taking a look at it. It's, it's a simple two-prong approach where patient care is delivered both either via telehealth or in the practice. And if something changes with the patient, maybe leading up to that in-office visit, I pop a fever this week, didn't have that earlier, I come in contact with, or I find out that somebody I was in contact with has tested positive for COVID, obviously something needs to change. So the patients can choose between uh, these two options, depending on their comfort level and what the particular scheduled visit is for. And then also as things change, they can shift. And leveraging the right workflows and technology, we're going to talk a little bit about that. This can become a sustainable solution for the future going forward. And again, most of this has been powered and fueled by telehealth. Um, this estimate is 10 to 20 percent of patient visit volume. I'd be curious to see what that actually comes out to in the future going forward when they look back at these past few months and evaluate the ambulatory healthcare space and how much of that has been presented via telehealth. It also helps prepare for future spikes. And this is something I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee, if you couldn't tell from the accent. Something we've seen here, we, we, we did a good job early on. We progressed through phase one, social distancing, mask wearing seemed to be effective. As we moved into some of the other phases, we started to see an uptick in spike, spiking cases. We actually had our highest case count last week I went and got a test last week. I've got a little cold. Hopefully, I'm not too nasally for you today. I, I did test negative, but had to go get that checked out. And so as that's happened, we've taken a few steps back in our reopening phases. There's uh, We're back from phase three to phase two with some new specific guidelines, depending on what industry you're in. And because of this, you're going to start to see the need for both telehealth and office visits kind of go up and down. So you want to make sure that you're prepared for these future disruptions, leveraging technology within the specific workflows we'll walk you through so that you have options for the patient. And so first and foremost, let's just take a look at within this office visit. If patients are coming in to see you, how do you protect them and build confidence, but also protect your medical staff uh, and the, the staff that you have coming into the practice? And the first step is virtual waiting rooms. Uh, we've seen this tremendously across the board with the clients that we serve, with the prospects that we're speaking with. I've actually experienced it a few times already myself with our visits. My kids went back to daycare uh, probably four to six weeks ago. I'd say it's been six weeks now since then. We've experienced hand, foot, and mouth, strep, and now this cold. Um, luckily, not COVID. I think we kind of forgot that we can get sick with other things during this time, but my kids have uh, continuously reminded me that we can. And so for the first visit that we went in for, I received a call from the practice that said, hey, we need you to please wait in your car when you arrive. We're going to send you a, a text. You click on that link. You can complete the check-in registration process. Let us know when that's been done, and we'll call you whenever there's a room available. So the idea is that I don't stop in that waiting room at all and potentially give a viral shed if I were sick or asymptomatic or presymptomatic. 
and I don't expose myself to others who could have come through. So it's for protection of both patients and staff. There's questions now within that digital check-in process also just to kind of ask and trigger something that I may not have thought of. Maybe some patients just don't know. You know, somebody that you were in contact with tested positive that they may not know that means you shouldn't come into the practice. So you want to ask them these questions and screen. Maybe they had a fever a few days ago and it's gone away, but it hasn't been long enough, depending on what the staff deems appropriate. And there's a lot of ways to accomplish this. Uh, there's digital registration and check-in tools. Uh, we have our own here at Relation. It's similar to others that I've used within my own medical practices that my children go to. We'll walk through some examples of what that can look like, uh, as well as patient chats and messaging. Think of two-way text communications with the patients so that you can be a little bit more efficient in your communications and not have to rely so heavily on the phone conversations. And I think one thing you'll see that we want to talk about is ways that you can support this by putting it into the entire patient engagement strategy and how that can flow within that patient journey. And as I mentioned that patient journey, across the top you'll see kind of how we view the, the life cycle of that patient in the ambulatory setting or maybe just that patient journey. And there's a lot of different touch points along the way that we have tried to leverage technology to automate. And for this particular one, we're just looking at leveraging that e-registration process to allow them to check in from the parking lot. Or if you're a telehealth patient, you can check in from your phone and then wait in the queue. And this is where I'm talking about technology can work regardless of what that scenario is. So it is scalable and sustainable across this model, both as the cases spike and drop, and as you have to move back and forth between the different care models in between and within this hybrid care model. And it's also more efficient and effective for the patients. So it's meeting those expectations and needs that they have. And not just that, it's more efficient for the practice. So in the old way of doing things, maybe the historical historic norm, uh, changing patient information, taking payments, things of that nature, it required sharing a lot of different devices, a lot of surfaces, maybe it's a tablet, clipboard and paper, pens that they're passing back and forth. It required a lot of human inter intervention, so patients coming to the front desk and speaking with that front staff, potentially sharing virus, germs, whatever it might be. And then there was typically a significant manual process for data entry, whether it was taking that payment, manually posting that payment back, manually entering in the information that the patient had written on that clipboard or put into some type of pad. And going forward, as we start to leverage technology and use some of these tools that we're talking about, the idea is that the process should be contactless. So no contact whenever, wherever possible. Big part here is it's supported on patient devices. Tremendous amount of patients out there have uh, this phenomenal piece of equipment that has more technology in their pocket than we used to put a man on the moon. I mean, it's amazing what we have access to. And I think of when I was in college, I didn't even have anything like this. I might have had a flip phone at best. So we can leverage their own devices, which means that keeping up with maintaining hardware is not a concern on our end. And automating it is one of the biggest things for both making it easy for the patient, but making it easy for the practice. Because you want that data to flow back and forth, and you want the patient to be able to put certain parts of information in that can immediately go in and be updated within your practice, medical practice management systems and electronic health records. And if you use these right, as I mentioned earlier, they're both scalable and sustainable for the different care models. And you can choose which strategies work best for your particular specialty, your particular environment, the particular demographic that you see within the practice. 
So as you look at what this might look like, we've talked about the zero contact, some quick screenshots there of what it could potentially look like uh, for patients within their own experience. Um, and these are screenshots of ours. There's several other vendors out there that have something similar. The idea is that you want software that the patients can leverage, that they don't have to do anything prior to taking some type of action. We'll talk a little bit about that. That's getting more into that patient-centered approach. And you don't have to have these shared utensils or devices within the practice. And I want to talk a little bit about what this can look like with a quick case study. We have a group uh, called U.S. Dermatology Partners. And they're one of the second largest physician-owned derm practices in the States. Uh, constantly growing, constantly acquiring new practices, groups coming on board to share in the success that they have. Uh, at the time of writing this, they had 90 plus locations. By next week, who knows, that could be 100. So what they were running into with their issues, they were constantly acquiring these new practices. They had to move all the data into new systems that they had. So every existing patient in the newly acquired practice needed new forms every time they came in. That's tremendous work uh, burden on the staff. It's somewhat annoying for the patient. They're going to have to write the same information yet again on multiple pieces of paper. And it's going to require uh, a full-time dedicated staff person in the practice just to enter that information and that data in. So when we first came to them, this is something that they were trying to overcome. There's some other tools of ours they were looking to use. Uh, but for this particular one, they said, I think we can use this. And they implemented some strategies. And they saw a 90% patient adoption rate of e-registration. And I don't want to say that that's uh, typical of relations and what we do. I think that that is something that is typical of U.S. dermatology and how they've implemented that. Um, maybe follow up, we'd be happy to talk about some of the things they put in place. But they made a tremendous effort. And with that incredible adoption rate, 90% of patients checking in on their own device, they're able to obviously increase the workflow, reduce that FTE that they had just for that data entry, where uh, it's not always about getting rid of FTEs. I believe most of the time it's about repurposing a lot of times your FDEs have more than they can actually handle on any given day. And so we're looking at ways to kind of load balance human touches with these automated efforts so that the staff can get to other things that maybe they couldn't accomplish before. And they had more accurate data they finally found as well. With some of this patient data flowing directly into the patient records, when you look at demographics, I know when I fill out paper forms, my sevens can look like twos. Uh, the front office staff can be just overburdened and in a hurry. They can miss key one keystroke in. You may have the wrong cell phone or home address or email address on file for me for years, and neither of us know it. We can't communicate that back, and we don't know why we can't communicate well together. Through digital platforms, they were shown what was in the system. If I see that it's incorrect, I can update it. And then have the correct information go back in. And obviously, you'll see some of the stats there. 60% of these were done pre-visit. The other 30% were actually done in the practice, meaning the patients waited until they got there to fill these out. So that would be your patients that are filling it out now in the new norm, in their car, out in the parking lot, uh, versus the morning of before they left to come to the visit. Now, another part of this is being able to take payments. Uh, obviously, historically, you had to have that transaction in the exchange of either paper money uh, or the card. Uh, paper money is known to carry a tremendous amount of germs. This is something that was not as big of a deal before, obviously, but in the new norm with COVID, we're hyper aware of any way that we can have transmission of uh, a viral load or germs or anything of that nature. So digital payments have come to the forefront. Groups are looking at both within 
post-visit scenarios, but as well as that e-registration mobile check-in environment, how do you capture payments? And through digital payments, you can start to have ways for patients to pay their bills, uh, co-pays, deductibles, outstanding balances, pre-visit, uh, patient responsible, post-adjudication, post-visit. There's a lot of tools out there where it can be sent automatically to a patient to pay via text on their mobile device. So as you can see here, they're presented with that opportunity to pay and the ability to tokenize and store payments on file. Now, we do this. We're obviously not the only vendor in healthcare that does it. It's becoming much more predominant. Healthcare, as always, is slowly catching on to what the other industries do. And as mentioned earlier, you know, one of the greatest examples is Amazon. Now, Amazon obviously wasn't the first to do it. They may just be the largest to ever do it. But they're doing it for the same reason we're doing it and the same reason that first e-commerce site that did this did it back in the day. If you make it simple, and simple means you can accomplish this in less than 30 seconds, you make it easy for the patient and you present that form of payment at the time of checkout, consumers, patients, you and I, were four times more likely to make a payment from this screen and if you ask us to get up and go look for a purse, a wallet, or a credit card, four times. This is one of the most powerful things that we do in terms of revenue collection and that is readily available for all of you out there from, from the vendors that you come in contact with and vendors like us. Now, if you think about your own spending habits, it's pretty quick. I'm laying on the couch. I'm surfing through the Internet. I find something I want to buy. If it's on a website where my phone will automatically populate that payment method because it's stored in my phone, I probably shouldn't do that. Or it's a website that I've been to before, such as Amazon. Pretty quickly, I'm going to just hit buy, and it's going to show up at my doorstep. More often than not, I am much less likely to complete that transaction if it asks me to enter my credit card information, and I don't happen to have it on me right there at the time. Usually, I'll move past that unless it's something I really, really need at the time, and hopefully come back to it later. Now, as you start to think about ways that you can leverage this within your practice, obviously having uh, stored payment information. There's PCI compliant vendors that do this. It's called tokenization. Payment plans become very easily and effortless. You can reduce the manual process of that by setting patients up on auto pay with a card on file. And technology like this can also help auto post payments back to visit IDs within your system. So that reconciliation process is much easier on the back end in posting those payments. Quick case study about this, UPA or University Physicians Association. It's a large medical practice billing company in Knoxville, a couple of hours east of me here. And they serve a little bit over uh, 400 providers, 475 to be exact. They do medical billing service, they're a CBO for many of the different practices. And they had many practices on disparate systems, uh, taking payments across multiple different tax IDs, obviously, and across multiple locations within some of those same tax IDs. And they were just inundated with phone calls, calling into the CBO, trying to process those payments over the phone, trying to manually input that with a complex posting process across the different accounts and the different posting rules, depending on who it was. And they were trying to manually keep up with all of this, some of it in spreadsheets, some of it with just knowledge from the staff there, the actual CBO itself. They finally decided to leverage uh, tools from us. We call it... Uh, Patient balance messaging with MD Pay. That's just a, a brand name of what we do, but think of digital pay, text to pay solutions. So, post adjudication, it falls to patient responsible. It's a trigger to send a message hey, you owe us money. Would you like to pay? Click here. Very simple and easy ways two factor authentication as opposed to sign ins or logins from accounts. 
a patient, as you saw on the last screen, can now make these payments. As they begin to leverage this, 57% now of their payments are made via digital means. And maybe not the that's not the most exciting for me. The most exciting would be a 43% increase in patient payments. Tremendous. And again, I don't think this is something that would be typical to what we do. I think this would be typical or more unique to UPA in the way that they've been able to leverage this. It's pretty amazing and tremendous. Uh, some of the best practices that they're putting out uh, and starting to utilize our solutions. 7% increase in monthly provider revenue uh, and a wonderful reduction in days in AR. So those are some ways that some of these tools can be leveraged in, in an in-office setting. I want to kind of shift now as the other side of this hybrid care model and talk about ways that we can maintain a certain level of telehealth uh, in addition to these in-office visits to still continue to meet the needs that patients have uh, and be prepared in case we do have other spikes or disruptions in our care as we move forward. And the biggest thing that has kept telehealth from going in the past has been reimbursement. It's just been unknown or it's been historically low compared to an office visit. Suddenly it didn't matter anymore. We had to have telehealth. We couldn't see patients in the practice. And payers started to say, hey, we'll pay, we'll pay you, at least for now, the same for a telehealth visit as we will for an in-office visit. Uh, some of the reports I'm hearing is it wasn't quite that simple, but it's getting better. Now we're starting to see a little bit more confusion and mix-up uh, as it's become more mainstream suddenly. So there's multiple kinds of telehealth visits. I believe CMS has added uh, over 100 additional services to be reimbursed for in our telehealth, which is good and bad. I mean, the news is great. Hey, they're, they're, they're getting in the game. They're saying, hey, we're going to be able to reimburse you for all these different services, but it does mean that it's become more complex all of a sudden, and you have to learn the new complexities on the fly, kind of like you're building the plane in flight. But to determine is this an originating or a distant site? And then also how long are these decisions that are being made going to remain in place? Some of them have said, hey, as long as COVID is going on, or at least this is the new norm, we'll continue to reimburse this way, uh, but it won't last forever. I've already heard some reports that some of the payers are sending letters out to their members saying, hey, for X amount of weeks more, we're going to continue to reimburse this way, and then we're going to go back to some different models. And even now, you're starting to see telehealth can mean a lot of different things, obviously. Is there video involved or is it just telephone? There's a significant difference in the reimbursement between those different models. So with that being the case, obviously, we have no control over what's going to happen, how that's going to be reimbursed, how it's going to be paid. We just know that it is probably going to be a part of the long-term strategy, and we expect it to stick around primarily because of the new norm that we find ourselves in with the virus. So we want to start to look at ways that within that patient journey you saw earlier, we can map and weave telehealth appointments into that visit. And it's actually very simple. Uh, I want to encourage everybody today with all the things that we're talking about, don't overcomplicate this. It is fairly simple. Think about the expectation you have and think about telehealth here as simply another appointment type, right? And you just want to help patients choose which one is the best for them and make sure that they're aware that it exists because it's gonna be something that they're starting to look for. And when I talk about just viewing it as another appointment type, this is something that we saw within our own client base whenever COVID hit. We had a lot of groups that said, hey, we need to, like, patient experience and patient engagement was a, a super high priority in our list. That's been pushed aside because we have to figure out telehealth and we have to figure it out now. 
And we gave them the room and space to do that because it was a very trying time and everybody was concerned. After a little while following up, we began to have some conversations to ask them, you know, how was it going? How were they leveraging telehealth in their practice? Uh, some groups had asked us to turn off things like appointment reminders because they were only doing telehealth. And we asked, okay, how are you reminding your patients about those telehealth visits? And they said, oh, we're calling them manually. Obviously, that's something that they didn't want to do before if they had gotten automated appointment reminders, and we just had to gently remind them, hey, that's another appointment type that can come over in data. We can still send reminders for that. We can send the links for the telehealth visit. So kind of the same workflows as we looked at earlier with the e-registration. <clears throat> you can leverage that for telehealth as well. So it doesn't have to be a completely new process. You can start to put solutions in place, leverage work for both sides of this and just keep that in mind regardless of you know what tools you have or what tools you're using look at what you already have in place today and how can that potentially be leveraged at least from a technology standpoint for telehealth as well you can create this digital waiting room it's it's not dissimilar to the virtual waiting room where patients are waiting in the car uh, they're essentially in a digital waiting room or a queue waiting for the provider to come in if you will to that room and see them and this helps you be a little bit more prepared when things change or arise and patients suddenly can't come into the practice. And this can be leveraged today in this current norm of the virus. It can also be leveraged in the future uh, as patients who had a normal routine healthcare visit come up and they suddenly have to cancel because they're sick. Maybe instead of canceling that visit, you can still see that patient at that time slot if you don't have time to backfill it via telehealth. In order to accomplish this, you're going to need a digital front door strategy. And if you haven't started to look into this, it's something I really encourage you to do. It's something we're hearing more and more from the health systems, especially that we work with, is they're looking for ways to come up with a digital front door strategy. And it can mean a lot of different things. I want to kind of keep it in context of, of what we have experience with, but there's a lot of things outside of our experience that you may be able to pull this into. But first and foremost, you want to look at ways for them to have digital registration forms to keep patients and records up to date. I think some of you know what that can look like already as we discussed it earlier. Continue to keep that digital check-in, continue to keep the patient queue, and then also be able to communicate very quickly one-to-one uh, -one with SMS or text conversations and make sure that you have the ability for the mobile payments we talked about earlier to round it out. And this creates a true contactless experience for the patient. It's something that they're going to be looking for, and I believe a lot of you are looking for as you try to find ways to fight this. One thing I haven't talked about as much is that I just want to talk about some ways that providers are using that today. And leveraging digital communication uh, is, again, if nothing else, maybe the biggest thing, meeting the expectations that the patient suddenly has. In case you haven't noticed, People don't like to talk to people anymore. We want to communicate uh, via various methods, whether it's text message or social media platforms, for whatever reason. Uh, phone is typically a last resort. And if you have patients that it's tough to communicate or get in touch with them via phone, text or SMS can be an incredibly powerful tool to suddenly engage those patients in ways that you weren't able to before. I'm going to take a look at, at what this can be. And there's tools like this that already exist. Obviously, we have one of our own. We are not the first or the only one to have this out in the industry. You may have something that can already accomplish this today. Uh, but tools like one we call demand messaging. 
uh, I say that with hesitation because we're rebranding it to something called broadcast messaging. I think it's a little more of an industry standard term, uh, but also has a lot more robustness uh, for a new version that we're coming out with. So that's why we decided to rename it. But the idea is the same. Originally, it was built for things like delay or weather notifications. As I mentioned, I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, in a couple of months, around about December, we may get a quarter inch of snow and ice, and our entire city will shut down. Nobody will go see their providers. Nobody will go to work. Schools will be closed. And practices will need to say, hey, we're going to be closed today, or we're going to open two hours late due to snow and ice. It's just the truth that we live in. It could be that a provider is suddenly running behind. Maybe there is a surgeon who got behind in a surgery. They got into a, a total knee, and that total knee was just more complicated than they thought it was going to be, and it backed them up this morning. And so we need to push some of the schedule this afternoon for that particular provider's patients. We've had other random use case scenarios where uh, in one of the teaching facilities that we're in, a pipe burst in one of the buildings. And so they couldn't see patients in that clinic. They leveraged demand messaging early that morning, sent a message to every patient who was on the schedule, hey, if you're between eight and nine, we can't see you. We're moving things across campus, but we're going to open up over there, and please, if you have an appointment, come see us. And they saw patients at that other clinic that day and had a fairly steady stream and saw a considerable amount of the patients that were already on the schedule. Other things that you can let them know, you can make changes to the appointment reminders to let patients know that something is not going to be the same. If they try to respond to an automated message, you can link them in with an actual human in terms of text messaging to communicate that back and forth. You can support these other digital tools, whether it's e-registration, self-scheduling, and do this through things like chat or secure messaging to guide patients through what it is that they're trying to accomplish. I'll show you some examples of what that chat messaging can look like. Uh, some versions of this that are out there, some are secure, some are unsecure. There's a couple of different reasons you may want to use one or the other. So if it's a simple question of I've arrived for my appointment or I don't know where to come or we want to send them directions on where to park or send them updated hours, that's obviously something that can go out in an unsecure way, uh, assuming that once you put all the pertinence of that information in there, it doesn't contain any PHI. If you are going to be sending something that contains PHI or HIPAA messaging, you want to obviously use a secure site. And the things that the secure side is used more for are things like patient triage, asking some specific questions about their condition, uh, trying to find out if they need to be seen within the practice or if they do need to stay home, asking them to self-quarantine and giving them directions for that, talking about medications, even questions and information around test results and follow-up. And it's a tremendous amount of information, again, from these mobile devices that we have that can be shared back and forth. Just a few quick examples. You can be talking about that, that again, that HbA1c. You can be sending particular documents through to be signed or viewed. Patients can even send pictures of what's going on with them. And I've got this skin rash on my child. I really don't want to come in and expose, you know, the kids to the practice today, but could we take a look at this and quickly tell me, yeah, that is indeed hand, foot, mouth, or whatever it might be. And so now I want to transition just a little bit to ways that we can potentially jumpstart this patient care or kind of get these patients re-engaged that might have taken some time off during the virus for some different concerns. This is also something that can be used to keep the entire patient population engaged. Uh, we, use, we use the phrase health campaigns. There's a lot of other terminology used out there for it. 
the idea is putting into action the very powerful and robust analytical tools or reporting tools that you already have within your systems today. So most of you have the ability to identify a subset of your patient population down to a very extremely granular detail, whether it's patients who are overdue for a test or who need to come in for that third follow-up vaccine. Maybe they're just overdue for an annual wellness visit. Maybe they're just within a specific payer, age group, demographic, zip code, whatever it is, you can identify them. Then you try to put that into action. And the idea here is leveraging technology to do automated touches on a regular basis with a little bit of logic behind it to remind these patients, hey, you have an outstanding visit that we need to take care of. Please call us to take care of this or click here if you're using a self-scheduling tool to schedule this appointment. Now, this can also be used uh, both for gaps in care as well as, as well as recalls. So as you look at kind of using this to automate that going forward, I'll explain real quick because sometimes there's some confusion on this. To us, a gap in care is a routine visit that should have happened but didn't in the past. A recall is a routine visit that is upcoming in the near future. So maybe I had my physical today, the provider and I know that we want to see each other for that physical one year from today, but the provider may not know his or her schedule. I sure don't know my schedule a year from today. And so they say, we're going to put a pin in that, and we're going to reach out to you in 11 months to make sure that we get that on the books, or 10 months, whatever your workflow is. A lot of this still looks like a paper Rolodex that groups are flipping through. I still see postcards and mailers getting sent out. Uh, instead of that manual intervention, that human intervention, we want to automate this by simply marking them within the PMEHR system and then pulling that information in a report that can then be sent out with some logic around it to the patients. As we work with some of the groups that we do, a lot of times there's confusion. They say, hey, this sounds great. I like the idea. I don't really know where to start. And one of the things we started to do was working with some of these specific healthcare providers that are big promoters of what we do and some of the specific specialties to try to generate some standard health campaigns that groups know that they should start with. And that's some of what you see here on the screen now. Uh, we've gone through and developed some of these in conjunction with them. So you're coming pediatric, you're coming general med, even you're coming OBGYN. And it gives them kind of a starting point. Uh, one thing you should see when you start to leverage tools like this, uh, something I want to encourage you to keep in mind, you'll see a tremendous uptick in visits for these particular campaigns you're running. And then all of a sudden in the future, you're going to see a sharp drop off and groups start to think, hey, what's going on? The solution isn't working. That's actually the sign that the solution is indeed working. You've gone back through that backlog. You've gotten everybody compliant, at least the majority, obviously not everybody. And now it's continuing to work to keep that on a regular basis going forward so that we have very few that are falling through the cracks and need to be picked back up on the back end from a gap in care. Now, a quick example of what this could look like in an OBGYN setting such as this. So we have a group in Ohio, Seven Hills Women's Health Centers. Very large group, 57 providers, 20 locations. Uh, they wanted to run a few different campaigns. They started that one in particular, I believe, for overdue well women visits. Now, they were losing patients that they weren't sure if it was to other practices, if it was just to them forgetting they need to come in. And they needed this exam every three years. It was some new guidelines that they had to follow. They also had new mothers who were neglecting their postpartum care, and they were looking for a better way to try to drive some of this activity. The, the human outreach was inundating them and kind of overwhelming them. So they connected with us, 
uh, in conjunction with a few of the things they were trying to accomplish, we started the health campaigns. Uh, just one of those health campaigns that they were running generated 1,370 new appointments and resulted in a quarter of a million dollars in revenue within the first year. And that's something that a lot of groups do kind of uh, grab onto. As long as we are in a fee-for-service world, obviously running these campaigns can mean uh, increased revenue. But the other side of it, um, whether we move to a fee-for-outcomes world or just as you look at how we do want to take the best care of our patients, running these campaigns can help mitigate the risk of potential future high-cost events. What I mean are things like not getting your blood sugar checked, so suddenly maybe it's a diabetic foot ulcer that gets out of control and can need an amputation. Not coming in and getting a screening. And so early screening of breast cancer that could have been caught has now been gotten out of control and it's going to be a worse outcome or not as confident about the outcome. So we're looking at ways to try to catch things early, make sure that we continue to take the best care of patients, and there's a financial reward for this as well. So looking ahead, uh, there's some things that we know, there's some things we don't know. And there's also gonna be a few things that we don't know we don't know. Uh, but we're gonna do our best with the information that we have at our hands today to try to prepare and look for ways that we can continue to leverage these tools for the providers and for the practice. So after COVID-19, and I'm not real sure what, what I mean by when I say after COVID, because I don't know if there's ever gonna be truly an after. Maybe once we have a vaccine, this will start to change. Um, but as I see it, this is a little bit of a new norm going forward. Things are starting to open. By that specialty, location, geography, you're going to have to look for ways to strategize to see patients, especially in maybe a telemed scenario, because this has become very normalized. It's going to be very tough for patients to have had access to this and to suddenly give it up. So I don't see that going away. It's going to become another standard of care. There's going to be continued investments in mobile and digital technology like self-scheduling, pre-registration, the telehealth visits. Uh, this is gonna be an investment from both sides. I see healthcare systems, practices, continuing to invest in these solutions to grow their digital front door strategy. I've also seen a tremendous amount of outside money coming into healthcare, coming into startups, coming into new companies that are finding ways to be innovative. So you'll start to see some new tools come out. You'll see this be a continued focus of growth. Anytime the money pours in, it's something that's gonna to continue to improve and grow. And there's going to continue to be financial pressures and strains on the groups as well. Um, just as you're seeing fewer patients, as certain providers are seeing fewer, fewer patients, as you're adjusting to the new norms, it's going to be difficult. You're going to have to find ways to see as many patients as you can or at least adapt and adjust to what's going on out there in the current landscape. I'm not real sure what's going to happen with some of the reimbursement from the government, but they are coming out with certain programs to help support the providers and the practices throughout this time. And there's a lot of things that, that we're learning as we go through this, things that worked before that have been broken by this point, and we're seeing they're not going to work for the future, things that we didn't think would become very prevalent. If I'm being honest, telemedicine, I did not see it becoming prevalent uh, for at least another several years, and now it's here, and it looks like it's going to be something considerable and something for the considerable future. Um, and those are going to continue to happen. But as I mentioned, and a lot of doom and gloom, hopefully giving you a little bit of hope because there are some better days ahead and there's going to be more uh, innovative solutions and stronger health systems coming out of this. And I think it is something that has kind of pushed healthcare to catch up to the rest of the world in terms of technology and engagement, in terms of the solutions that we offer our patients that are, in fact, the consumers of healthcare. 
and we're going to start to see a better experience, hopefully better outcomes, and hopefully we can continue to work together to get through this. Now, I alluded early on to this patient-centered approach, and I want to kind of run you through that real quick. So we use a couple of different behavior models here at Relations. Probably one of our favorite ones is B.J. Fogg behavior model. If you're not familiar with B.J. Fogg, he has a great TED Talk, very short. Go out there and check it out. But essentially, he says, in order for uh, anything to happen, a behavior to start, you got to have three things. You have to have a trigger, and then after that trigger, you have to have motivation and ability. Quick example he gives is pretend with me that you're at home or you're in your office and your cell phone rings and you don't answer it because, and just think of a reason. All right, now if that reason was, I was in the other room and didn't hear it, I was in the shower, I was with a client and couldn't take it, that was ability. If the reason was, it was that relation sales rep, I just didn't wanna take his call again, right? That's motivation. So if either of those are missing, you can't have an actual action. And so when we look at the historical tools that patients have had, it's been a lot of healthcare apps, it's been a lot of patient portals, which are great from a technology standpoint. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the government said you have to have portals. The industry responded uh, in an incredible fashion. They built some very powerful, robust tools. Healthcare apps started to pop up everywhere. The problem was everywhere. There were too many of them. It was tough to decide, hey, which app do I use? Which ones do I download? And so we saw very low adoption rates. Uh, portals get adopted 25% of the time. Obviously, that varies depending on what health system you're at. If you go and look at the return users, it's even lower. Apps are incredibly low. That is, apps 2% is specifically for healthcare. When you look at a mobile-first approach, you see a 90-plus percent adoption. And it sounds a little crazy, but I'll kind of explain why. If you have patients who just don't understand how to download an app, they don't understand how to create a, a portal, well, that's going to be ability. You have some that just don't want to. They just refuse. They don't want another login, username, password to remember. That's going to be motivation. Back to password, a lot of times, I think one of the most common ones, is, I forgot my password. That's back to ability. And so Fog has created this curve that you see here, where above that curve, triggers succeed, below it, triggers fail. For the most part, portals and apps fall below that curve, not having enough either motivation or ability once that trigger has happened. When you look at a patient-centered approach, what that might look like is text, voice call, email, mobile means. So that text with an email backup would be the trigger. Having that patient have ease to take a, uh, action on it is kind of like the payments that we talked about earlier. Patients can click a link, verify their identity with a two-factor authentication process. If, you're, if you don't know that one, it's much uh, similar to the banks that you probably use, mobile banking. You get to a secure HTML5 or just a web page, and they're going to have a little bit of information. It's a unique link that you clicked on. They're going to say, hey, one of these phone numbers is yours. Which would you like us to text the code to? There'll be two phone numbers that are mostly X'd out except for the last four digits. You choose the correct one, a code gets texted to you. And then you enter that code and you're in. Things like that to make it super easy and super quick for the patients to accomplish them. So it's very simple calls to action and you see a tremendous amount of adoption through those. So think about ways that you can remove barriers for patients to utilize the solutions that you have today. Make it very easy for them to use them and they will start to use them. And it goes without saying, I do have to kind of hit on this. As I talked about earlier, people just want to text. 
they don't want to talk on the phone for whatever reason, be it good or bad. We can't change it. It's, it's the new norm that we live in. And a couple of reasons that might help you understand why. On average, it's a difference of 90 minutes to 90 seconds response time for email versus text. Uh, individuals are 28% more likely to recommend a company if it offers text messaging. And nearly two-thirds of people prefer text over voice as a customer service channel. This is a survey conducted by Open Market. It's out there if you want to go find it. Uh, the idea here that we try to look at is ways that we can obviously reduce this phone tag, right? I want to send a text, and it waits until somebody can answer it, and then they send me a relevant piece of information back rather than calling and leaving a voicemail that doesn't actually tell them possibly what I need and then waiting for them to call me back. So if you have the ability to use text, I suggest you use it. If you don't, I suggest you start to explore ways that you can add SMS text messaging capabilities to your organizations and your practices. And look at ways to add patient engagement at all the different touch points that you see above. It's more than just basic appointment reminders. Think about the whole big picture. How do you allow them to schedule? How do you let them know that things have changed? How do you let them register, make payments? How do you allow them to give feedback? If they didn't show, do you have automated ways to say, hey, we're sorry we missed you and get them back in? How do you let them know about their labs? How do you continue to automate recalls and how do you close gaps as they occur? And, and you can think about it now for this time, it's important. What do we do now during COVID and the new norm? Um, but don't make that the only part of your strategy. As you use that and start to formulate your strategy, take a step back and also look at the big picture. How will this play out in 12 to 24 months from now? And then find something, find one thing to do first. What's first? And from there, what tools will start to complement other digital strategies like we already have or like telehealth? So don't try to tackle all of this at once. Take it one step at a time, one unique tool at a time. Uh, and this is a great infographic or visual uh, for doing that. If you want to look at how do you achieve the best patient engagement with some of the best practices. And so if nothing else, you know, you've got access to the deck, go back and look at these. Think mobile first. Don't lock it away behind usernames and passwords. Make sure that it includes administrative and clinical users. So you don't want to complicate it. You don't want to hamper ROI. You want to make it simple, but you want everybody to have access. Look at others who have done this. Look for referenceability in the companies that you're choosing. Look for others that are out there who have kind of taken this strategy and dove in and find out what's working. Uh, even get some feedback from your patients. Make sure that you set it up right the first time. Find a company that's going to act as a partner, a true partner for helping you develop the strategy, not just offering you tools. And then determine your ROI and be sure and track it, obviously. You want to measure success. That's very important. And if you can take it kind of one step at a time for each of the different tools or solutions that you're looking to uh, implement and apply these principles and do it with a partner, I think you'll have a very successful strategy going forward. So with that, uh, I'm going to be quiet for a moment and open it up to questions. Well, thank you so much, Trevor. That was very, very informative. I know that um, this is a, an area that uh, so many people, it's, it's extremely relevant. So, um, I mean, I know myself that uh, um, this is something that, um, you know, hits on something that um, speaks to me for sure. 
So um, we do have some questions um, here. So the first one here is, um, is there an advantage to doing something more involved like digital registration over the simple text back and forth strategy you discussed as it relates to virtual waiting rooms and curbside check-in? Um, is there an advantage to that? So uh, my initial answer is yes, but also part of that answer has to be it depends. It depends on your demographics. It depends on your specialty. It depends on your workflows. Uh, the communication back and forth via the text is a great way to communicate and a great way to let patients know kind of what's going on, what's coming next. But if you want to actually empower them to give you the useful information and to complete what used to be probably a paper and clipboard in a now digitized format, uh, adding in kind of the mobile e-registration tools is a vital part of that. And I do think it will help um, be a stronger strategy for you going forward. Okay. Um, yeah, it's funny. The other day I had a, um, I went to a, a doctor's office, I think for the first time after doing telehealth, which I hadn't done telehealth previously because um, I thought, oh, well, it's going to be a pain. And then, um, then, you know, all during this COVID, I had been doing um, all kinds of telehealth visits, mostly with my children. And then I had um, some with my mother and then one for myself. And then um, recently I had one, uh, a visit in person, and I thought, oh, man, what a pain in the neck to have to actually go in person now when we could have just done it um, now right. uh, over the phone or like a Zoom type of appointment. And I had to go in person, you know, drive there, wait and, you know, check in in person and fill out these all these forms in person. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I, I think I like doing telehealth so much more now um, because... <laughs> You know, you could be waiting, uh, you know, online and then, you know, um, and it is so much better also often to, to pull up to a place. And um, if, if you do have to go in person, then text when it is your time to, to go in and, and wait. Anyway, um, but I think I'm taking up other people's No, it makes questions. total sense. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. It does. It does make a lot more sense. But it is funny how you said you you said that uh, you thought it was going to be several years for telehealth to, to um, take to take hold and now all of a sudden it's like in a in a matter of just a few months here Absolutely. it is yeah because i mean i adopted it so quickly and i thought and before i was thinking oh no it's but it's so convenient it's amazing so anyway here's another question here um how are healthcare organizations handling digital registration if a patient shows up for an appointment oh yeah here we go um and hasn't completed their forms do they go back to paper i mean what what should they do this is a good question. Yeah, great question. Um, mm -hmm. So how are they or how should they? Uh, I'll answer a little bit of both. Uh, we right. see everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We do see some that will they'll keep uh, the clipboard and paper at the front desk. Uh, prior to COVID, we saw a lot of that. You know, there were right. groups that had digital, digital front door strategies, and some of them would use it. You'd have patients come in and, oh, I forgot to do it or um, – mm -hmm. Maybe it was a, a, an elderly population and they, at the time, you know, a few years back, they, they weren't leveraging it and they would keep the, the paper and clipboard for them. We've seen less of that. Um, and that's what apparently kicks all the kids off of the newest social media platforms because everybody has a Facebook now. Uh, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, they're going to get on there to look at pictures of grandbabies and everything else. So they're starting to use technology more. Um, some of the ways that it can be uh, a little bit more productive uh, and also look at ways to, again, make it more contactless and reduce uh, potential 
usage of different tablets and clipboards everybody has to touch. There's tools out there where, you know, whenever that patient does come in, you can ask them for their phone number. <clears throat> if they arrive and they didn't have an appointment or they're just showing up, sometimes we'll do this in urgent care. You know, what's, your, what's the best phone number for you? You're going to receive a text in a moment. Click on that link and complete the registration process. So then that comes in. And depending on, sometimes it can create a new patient in the system. Uh, sometimes it just comes in and then uh, it's kind of a, a digital PDF, if you will that the front office staff then has to take and create a patient in the system with that, but they've been able to capture that information in a digital setting and also reduce contact between the patient and the staff. Um, a lot of that just depends on the technology you're using, both uh, the vendor that you use for the registration as well as your PMEHR system and what capabilities exist between the two for data connection. Okay, all right. And then uh, here's another question. How are providers and their staff using text for, conversa for conversations with PHI? What happens if a patient um, is on a non-HIPAA compliance channel and starts uh, sharing PHI? And how do these strategies apply to acute care settings? This, and this is a great question as well. Yeah, this is good. Um, you know, there's a couple of different ways. Most of them are using secure settings anytime they are running out uh, PHI. I know in hours, if you try to actually, it, it's always got a reminder, hey, is there any PHI in here? If so, please switch to secure. And if you try to put any kind of attachment, you know, if there's anything coming out of your system that's being sent to the patient, it doesn't matter. We're going to immediately, that should be secure. And it won't do an attachment without flipping it to secure. Um, obviously, patients are allowed to share whatever they want. Um, with other people, but you know, you want to make sure that they know that that particular channel isn't secure. And uh, if you're kind of curious, like, how does this work? It's secure, it's not secure, it's texting, what is that like? Um, for our solution and most of the ones that I've seen in the industry, when you send that unsecure message, it goes out of a dashboard that the practice has. It looks a lot like iMessenger, if you've ever used that on a computer. Uh, it goes to all the patients listed there and, and you're messaging with them. And it goes from there and it ends up in your, your text SMS uh, on your mobile device. So, you know, if you have an iPhone, it's just messages right there. And that little red icon with a one pops up and you have a text and you go in there and read it. If it's a secure message, it still goes there. But what goes there is a notification, hey, you have a secure message from your healthcare provider. Click here. And then it just takes them out to a mobile environment where they do that two-factor authentication to make sure that you do indeed have the right person. And then that chat window is HIPAA compliant, secure, and will stay open for a certain amount of time and allow them to communicate back and forth. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, um, I think that we're kind of running up on time a little bit. So um, do you have any other um, words of advice for us? Uh, any other things that you wanted to, to share with us um, before we wrap up? Just encourage everybody again. Um, we went over a lot of stuff today. There's a lot of different things you can implement. Take it one step at a time. Um, don't try to tackle it all at once. Kind of line it up and find out what's most important. Think about what your own expectations for that type of engagement are, maybe outside of healthcare. And that's what your patients are going to be. And kind of pull that in and look for uh, vendors out there that are going to partner with you and can help you through this. And, and don't, don't overthink it. Don't overcomplicate it. Try not to get overwhelmed. Um, it can be simple and it can help. Okay, thank you. Well, I really appreciate you being here today, Trevor. Um, uh, very informative and giving us um, a lot of things to think about. So thank you so much for, for coming on today. Appreciate it.
thank you for having us. Thank you. And thank you attendees for uh, coming on and attending as well. We always um, appreciate you um, being here as well. Please use the contact information, which you can find in the slides here. Um, uh, remember, you can download those. And uh, please send us uh, any questions afterwards if you think of those, and we'll forward those on. Um, or please send those directly to um, Trevor at, uh, at Relation. And uh, please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.